man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Job 5-7 I used to think that Job was an exceptional kind of guy, not just in his unparalleled godliness, and he was a man of incredible piety. I thought Job was the example of this massive amount of shattering suffering, suffering so egregious, so painful, so all-encompassing, that it must be that Job was the example for us of someone who suffered more than we all do, so that however much we suffer, it will always fall short of Job's story. But I don't think that anymore. Man is born to trouble like sparks fly upward. And if you live long enough, you will encounter suffering. And it may not be on the scale of Job's suffering. It might be worse. Everybody who lives in the world lives through trials. In fact, we are fallen creatures. We are sinful creatures. We live in the midst of a fallen and sinful society. And as a result of that, we experience constant trouble. In fact, it just seems like it never goes very far away if it goes away at all. In Psalm 22:11, David said, Be not far from me, crying out to God, Be not far from me, for trouble is near me. In Isaiah 8:22, God speaks through Isaiah of his judgment in the world that left men, quote, to look unto the earth and find only trouble. Frankly, even for Christians, even for those of us who are the children of God, there's a constant kind of facing of trouble, a constant facing of trial in a very troubled world. If you're a pastor, those constant troubles John just described are an inevitable part of your life and the lives of everyone you minister to. We will have days that are Job-like, days that shift the course of our entire lives, days that redefine us and more than unsettle us. The great English poet John Donne calls days like this Job's sick day. And if and when you have one, it's a day that takes your breath away and redirects your entire life and makes you shake with terror. Because life in a fallen world will be twisted and broken and shattered by grief. And when it is, how will you preach? My name is Austin Duncan. I'm the director of the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching at the Master Seminary. This is the podcast from the Center, and this is Season 1, The Expositor, The Life and Preaching of John MacArthur. Not long ago, I sat down with John, his wife Patricia, and his daughter Melinda to talk about suffering that the MacArthur family has endured. Specifically, we talked about what happened on a beautiful summer day in 1993. So I was at the golf course waiting for Matt to come and join me for golf, and I got a call into the clubhouse. You have a phone call from your daughter-in-law, and it was Kelly, Matt's wife saying um, she was she was obviously hesitant mom's been in an accident and I 
I said, what do you mean? And Kelly didn't say anybody was dead. So I, I assumed that if somebody had been killed, she most likely would have told me because she was not real clear. She said, I don't exactly know what went on, but she's in, they're both in the hospital. So I was at least relieved. And then I began to think more about it. And I thought, this something's, something's really serious here. We were headed up to um, Wrightwood. Um, my dad and Matt were going to golf up at Crystal Air. This is Melinda Welch. John and Patricia's youngest daughter. Just a few weeks before that fateful summer day, she had finished her freshman year at the Master's College. She was in the passenger seat while her mom drove on a winding rural road. They were headed to a family gathering, dinner in a small town 75 miles north of Los Angeles. So we were we were headed north towards Brightwood, exiting Pear Blossom Highway. The road had been like washed out and for some reason the tire got off the road she overcorrected and we flipped I remember we were listening to Keith Green make my life a prayer to you Yeah, it will never be anything other than that memory for me when I hear that song. The car was upside down, I I think. I looked over at my mom, and she was, like, crumpled. So I thought, this is bad. This is really bad. And I don't, I don't know how, but somehow I climbed out of the car to the side of the road. And my brother, Matt, was on his way to meet my dad and came across the accident. So I remember looking up and seeing my brother and his eyes, I remember this so clearly, were bloodshot, like he had been crying. And I remember thinking, why is he crying? Like, obviously, I wasn't totally lucid. I, I had some trauma. Matt MacArthur was in his own car, just ahead of his mom and sister. Here he is describing the accident from his point of view. I looked in my rearview mirror just by happenstance and uh, saw this car tumbling, rolling, end over end, you know, and I'm like, oh my, that's, no, that can't be them. so, but I couldn't find them in my rearview mirror, so I proceeded to turn around, and in fact, that was them. And the car ended up, the roof was completely crushed, and as I recall, the, the back two seats in a Honda Accord uh, had a little headrest, and the headrests were actually protruding out and above the roof line. That's how smashed the roof line had become. And as I pulled over, my heart began to race, uh, I noticed the car was wheels down, so that was a grace of God that they weren't upside down, but the car was faced wheels down. Keith Green was still playing on the uh, cassette deck. That's when we had cassettes 
back then. And somehow, uh, Melinda had crawled out of this car and had her hair filled with glass and, and blood. She had long blonde hair, and it just looked looked horrendous. I, I didn't know. She was screaming and kind of in a panic mode. And I, I was able to get her calmed down and sit down. Then I went around the car the other side, and my mom was still in a seat, just unconscious. And uh, it appeared as though she wasn't breathing. She looked discolored to me. And uh, I gently pulled her chin down, and she'd kind of make some guttural sounds like she's getting some air again. There, I stood there and just kind of made sure that uh, mom was, was okay. Didn't move her. She just remained still until the ambulance and, and the paramedics arrived. Shortly after that, they, they realized that the, uh, the injury was pretty severe to her neck, and they called a helicopter to airvac her to Holy Cross. At that point in my life, I'm a kid. I'm like thinking my mom's going to die. And now we're being, they airlifted me with her. So we would be together and my brother. So he was talking to me the whole flight to Holy Cross Hospital where we ended up. The next thing I know is she had broken her neck. I had stitches in a couple places and a concussion, but she she was in serious trouble and her brain was swelling which was the biggest concern as soon as john hears about the accident he jumps in his car and races to the hospital not knowing if his wife will be alive when he gets there and i honestly remember singing some hymns as i drove and just praying the whole 35 miles of this long you know, rode through the desert it is well with my soul. Um, you know, Horatio Spafford wrote that hymn when his daughters were drowned with his wife, and um, I just prayed that the Lord would spare them. And and I don't know why, but I I just comforted myself with singing. That hymn particularly comes to mind, and I don't know all the hymns I sung. When John reached the hospital. Patricia was alive, but just barely. Matt was the first person he spoke to when he walked in. When Dad came in the hospital, uh, (laughs) I had had found out that Mom had broken neck. They ran her off into the ICU. They came back to me. She's got a fractured neck, C2 and C3, which under normal circumstances affects your respiratory system. Um, So... Literally, I'm in the lobby waiting for Dad to show up. He walks in, you know, and uh, just puts his hand on my shoulder and said, where's Mom? I said, she's in ICU, Dad. They've concluded she has a broken neck, to which he replied, there are no accidents. God is sovereign, Matt. I love you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and see Mom. The Lord knows this to be true, and everybody who knows me and knows Patricia knows this to be true. I didn't ever want to live a day without her. I still don't want to live a day without her. Um, She is the unspoken um, partner in my life that people don't know, and so they don't understand the contribution she has made. Um, The contribution she has made to me, the contribution she has made... By being 
a faithful mom to four kids that absolutely adore her. And they're in Christ today largely because of her faithfulness. Uh, her, her love of people, her skill with people, her sensitivity to things um, balanced off my, you know, kind of hard-charging, task-oriented approach to life. So th- this was all in God's plan. And I, at that point, I couldn't, I mean, I was aware even by then of this partnership and how important it was to the ministry. So I, I, I couldn't make myself go to a place where I wouldn't be with without her. Um, and I, I told her after that, I said, I, I, I couldn't even conceive of that. Exactly one year after the car accident, John and Patricia were interviewed by a friend of theirs, Al Sanders, for a Grace to You broadcast. They recounted the accident, talked about the long, painful recovery, and the outpouring of love from Grace Community Church and the listeners of Grace to You. And Al asked John why God allowed that car crash to happen in the first place. The purpose of trials, John, why is that? As I think about Patricia, maybe if she had stopped a little longer at a red light, maybe if she had turned a little differently, maybe that wouldn't have all happened. Why did God allow that to happen? Well, I think, first of all, Al, it's the inevitability of a fallen world. Um, it's just, it's there. It's, it's, it's going to happen. Um, just in general, we live in a fallen world, and, and the world is cursed, and uh, death is reality, and disease, and illness, and injury, uh, and uh, error, and all of that, sin, and so forth. So it's, it's the nature of the world. And, and uh, you know, I don't see God up in heaven sort of, indiscriminately or discriminately at his own judgment, just sort of zapping people into accidents. I, I think it's it's just the way the course of the world runs. Uh, I don't think God blows out your tire and then rolls your car for you. I think you, you probably had a nail in your tire is what I'm saying or something. So I think it's the nature of the world. But I do believe providentially God controls all of that in the mystery of his will. And I believe that the purpose, you could sum it up in a number of ways, one of the purposes that God has in, in trials is basically to humble us, uh, to, to, to break our sense of control, our sense of um, sovereignty, if you will, over our life and times. And Suffering humbles us. I recently talked about trials and how God uses all kinds of suffering to sanctify us with my colleague, Dr. Steve Lawson, the Dean of the Doctor of Ministry program here at the seminary. Here he is talking about the many ways pain humbles and shapes a preacher. Well, God uses suffering in the life of the preacher to humble him and to wean him off of himself and to conform him into the image of Christ. And none of us today really get a free pass in suffering. It's a part of our sanctification. And it also is used by God to enable us to identify with other people who are hurting. It makes us compassionate. It makes us tender-hearted. It makes us not just high justice, low mercy, but it elevates our mercy because we've walked the valley of the shadow of death. And I think of people that I have ministered to 
I could have never related to them if I just had continued down my merry path before I entered the ministry, where everything just kind of seemed to fall in place. But you get your hands dirty when you're in ministry, and that's a good thing, because that's where people live. It's been well said, preach to broken hearts, and you'll never lack for a congregation. John MacArthur knows exactly what Dr. Lawson is talking about. Times of great suffering have shaped him, and they've shaped his preaching and pastoral ministry. They've also changed his relationship with Grace Community Church. Here's what he told me during that recent conversation about the car wreck. One of the things, the run, one of the risks you run in leadership is you're constantly okay. Like, you know, somehow you've escaped the realities of the junk that everybody else lives in until your wife almost dies because she breaks her neck. And all of a sudden, the reality of your vulnerability and humanity comes out strongly. And they saw that I'm not the I'm, I'm not the guy who has escaped all the pain in life. Uh, you know, my son Mark had a brain tumor as well. And th- those uh, those things allow people to see your vulnerability, and then all of a sudden, you need them. They need you to teach them the word and to lead them and guide them. And then all of a sudden, you're in a situation where you can't do anything at all and you need them. And they rose up in prayer. And I think I think that period of time had a long-lasting impact on how that church feels about our family. I just think that level of vulnerability was a gift from the Lord. And I mean, it's one of those deals where you're at the brink of something that could be a complete disaster to your ministry because you lose your life partner. And from my standpoint, the ministry never would have been what it's become without Patricia. But you're on the edge of that, and instead of it going that way, the Lord uses it to endear you in a way to the congregation um, that never could have happened unless you were so vulnerable that, that you needed them. You needed their prayers and their affection and their love, and that's what I remember about that. So what you're saying, there's something about suffering that is shareable, that's, that resonates. It's never contained to one Christian. I mean, I don't know if this is what Peter is saying, but maybe sharing in the suffering of Christ, there's something about tasting suffering that influences the people who you love and who who love you, and that's what you experience. Yeah, and I, it's very much like Christ, who basically was in all point tempted like as we are, yet without sin, who suffered everything that we suffer in, in his life. Part of his condescension was to suffer. And the Apostle Paul even says that I, I, I want to be connected to the sufferings of Christ. Yeah. Um, the suffering Christ is the Christ that can be real to us. And there should be enough suffering in the life of a pastor to have you understand the, the reality of interceding for your people because you've been there and they know that. So what greater lesson could a pastor give his congregation than having to trust his soul to a faithful creator in a situation that was completely out of his control? Look, when, when you're a pastor and a leader, control is your forte, right? Control is what you're all about. You, get, you got it all under control until you don't. 
And it's that vulnerability that, that is your humanity. Then when you go to the hospital and you're praying by somebody at the, in, the, in the hospital bed, they understand that you know what they're going through. I think that's a very, and you can't create it. That's, that's what the Lord has to do. I think it was Spurgeon who said there are only two kinds of people in the ministry, those who are humble and those who are about to be humbled. And I think suffering humbles us and it makes us dependent, and that's what we're trying to teach our people. Expositors must be with their people. They can't be distant and aloof. The congregation needs to see their pastor experience the same struggles that are part of life in a fallen world. And they must see him endure suffering with faith, with the conviction that marks his pulpit ministry week after week. Listen as Melinda describes how her father modeled endurance and faith in the midst of their family's great trial. I was worried. I was a mess. I was not okay. I I would say that would describe it. I was home with my dad and my other siblings weren't there. But you have to understand about him is he's always okay because he ultimately has a deep understanding and belief and trust in Christ. Like that is not something that ever shakes. I've never seen him waver ever. Like the the strong leadership he has in our family is one of never wavering and never worried. So my worry to him is like bizarre almost. And I remember crying in the hallway and while always being sensitive, he sort of isn't going to allow it. So this is what sort of changed my direction in the hallway. He grabbed my face. I was crying and upset and like, is mom going to be okay? And I think it was three days after the accident and he grabbed my face and said, If you believe what you say you believe about who God is, start acting like it. And I'm telling you, that has burned in my memory. And there are so many times in my life that I say that to myself. I mean, there is just no fear in him. So that is what it took to snap me out. I said, yeah, I have to start acting like I like I believe what I say I believe about who God is or or I don't believe it. So at that point, it sort of turned my sails in, in a different direction. And and she was becoming more stable. She was in the hospital for many weeks. Um, but that was life-changing for me in general, not just in the moment. But there's so many times in my life where I've, I've been okay because I can look and go, okay, I have to keep my eyes on... Christ, and and then it's okay. And in this situation, it ultimately was. When Melinda was at her lowest point, her pastor showed up in the most John MacArthur is my father way possible and pointed her to the reality of God's sovereignty. Countless members of Grace Church have a similar story. Of course, for them, the circumstances are different. John is typically visiting his congregants in a hospital or their home not in his own hallway. But showing up in the thick of suffering, that's a hallmark of John's ministry. People who know John MacArthur from afar 
Know him as the voice of grace to you, a powerful, effective preacher on the radio. But those same sermons have a different, more personal effect on the people at Grace Church because of John's pastoral care in their suffering. I know that a lot of people probably think that Pastor John's pastoral care and in, in his ministry is reserved to sort of the early years, but I could attest to the fact that this is still going on. This is Joseph Mejia. He's a member of Grace Church. Uh, even with myself, it was a few years ago that I was on a church retreat with some guys in our fellowship group. And it was on that retreat in Ojai, just about an hour outside of Los Angeles, that I um, got a call from my wife. And she had told me that her her dad had a stroke. So I, I knew I had to get back um, right away to be with her. And Pastor John happened to be in the area. Not only that, he had, he had somehow found out about uh, my father-in-law. So he actually gave me a ride back to L.A., obviously out of his way. Um, and it was just sweet of him to, to do that and to care for me and my family that way. Fast forward um, a couple years later, just to earlier this year, my father-in-law was diagnosed with uh, late-stage cancer. And Pastor John reached out to me and asked if he could visit him, which he did just prior to my father-in-law's passing. And all the way up to just about two weeks ago, I got uh, a call that my brother uh, had passed away unexpectedly. The next morning, I got a call from Pastor John to check on check in on me and pray for me. And I, I know that um, this is a common thing. I know other people at Grace that um, somehow Pastor John finds out about these things. And there's often times where um, he finds out before even members of the family and will beat you know, family members to the hospital of loved ones. Joseph is describing something that us pastors at Grace Church have experienced time and time again, getting to the hospital after MacArthur. Somehow, he always gets there first. He's a first responder on the scene in those dark moments. It just changes the way we see our pastor and we um, hear even his sermons. It just, it is so much sweeter and it just gives you a new perspective when you hear him from the pulpit. One of the best examples of what Joseph is talking about happened in the fall of 2007. My friend Jesse Johnson, who you've heard from before on this podcast, told me this story. He was the outreach pastor at Grace Church at the time. I was camping in Yosemite when I got a, the phone call about Baby Oaks that an elder at Grace, his grandchild, had almost drowned and was in the hospital. And Deidre and I were up by Fresno, up in the mountains in Yosemite. Here is Andy Muxlow the father of Baby Oaks, talking about what happened that day. It was a Saturday, and um, we got home, and uh, I was outside, and I immediately knew uh, from the cries of Becky that something um, tragic has happened. And uh, it was just after our little ones had taken a bath, and our 10-month-old baby uh, crawled and got his way into the bathroom without anybody in it and found his way into the tub. And so it was only a matter of minutes that, as you know, that could, that could have happened. And um, Becky found him and I was outside at the time and heard the cries of my wife and rushed in. And it was a very traumatic experience. 
experience in that I quickly grabbed Oaks from Becky's hands and immediately started performing CPR while she called 911. So we, as soon as we got cell phone service, booked it out of the mountains and took a few hours to get down to the hospital. And I thought I would get there first from from Grace Church because it's six hours away, five hours away from Grace Church. That's about how long it took us to get there. But we walked into the hospital and Pastor John was already there with Patricia. Jesse and his wife were a little more than 60 miles from the hospital where baby Oaks was. John and Patricia were more than 200 miles away. Somehow, John and Patricia got there first. Before we find out what John said to the Muxlow family in that Fresno hospital, we're going to hear from Rich Harrisick. He's a longtime elder at Grace Church. I recently talked to him and his wife, Karen, about their son, Brady. So um, when Brady was 10, 10 and a half years old, took him to the neurologist, uh, eventually looked at him and, um, and saw um, a, a, a mass in his, in his head and um, quickly determined that it was um, um, some type of tumor in there. I think the next day or the day after he was having brain surgery, biopsy confirms it's 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 brain cancer and that launched into just a four-year battle the harrisics didn't know it but god had been preparing them for brady's fight with cancer that's often how trials work those who endure them best prepare for them first here's karen harrisick describing that first conversation with her husband after brady's diagnosis i remember him saying you know we are prepared Um, We are prepared for this trial in the sense that we've been taught well. We know the scriptures and we know what we need to do. Um, It wasn't a matter of like taking time to question God or anything like that. It was just a matter of moving to the next point of just saying we trust you and we're going to walk through this knowing that we can trust you and that we stand on a solid rock. During those four years between Brady's diagnosis and death, he came to faith in Christ. He was baptized at Grace Church. He became very serious about his walk with the Lord. I'd spent a lot of time with Brady uh, in his living room and just listening to him talk and down at the at the hospital, um, City of Hope, which you know deals with very, very severe terminal cases of cancer. And um, that's a that's a precious family, Rich and Karen and their kids and yeah, but you know, Brady, as young as he was, was ready to go to be with the Lord. And that's why his mom and dad were so comforted in that situation. And just being a shepherd, just being with him, it isn't so much what you say because you've been teaching them. They know the theology. It's that you're there to reassure them that it's true. The Harris Six can experience peace, trust, and comfort because they know where Brady is. Right now, 18 years after his death, he's in the presence of Jesus. John MacArthur knows that the reality of heaven is the sole source of comfort for families like Rich and Karen. And he brought that same hope to the Muxlows in that Fresno hospital. Here again is Jesse Johnson. They had these little note cards with verses about... Um, praying for babies and confidence that what happens to babies when they die 
and they were handing them out to people. And uh, we went to Baby Oak's bedside um, together, and they brought the fans. This is in the in the NICU, so there's you know only a few. You're only supposed to have a few visitors there, but I mean, all the rules were were broke open for this, and they packed that little room with all these nurses. And Pastor John started leading a kind of a Bible study. Nobody had Bibles, but he started walking through um, these verses that were on these note cards for how you know what happens to babies uh, who die and how you can have confidence in the resurrection. And it was kind of a gospel presentation. And what was happening behind him is that some of the nurses who were believers had gone out and were pulling together nurses and doctors from all over this hospital. This was California Children's Hospital or something like that in Fresno. And the hallway started filling up. And by the end of it, there's probably 20, 25 people all pushed around to listen to Pastor John do this devotional really at this um, dying baby's bedside and uh, explained to everybody hope in the resurrection. In the middle of the worst tragedy a family can possibly go through, John MacArthur showed up and he talked about the hope of the resurrection from scripture. Here again is Andy Muxlow describing the power of God's word to comfort. I remember being in the hospital and reading my Bible and reading in the gospels and in particularly in Mark chapter 2 and the healing of the paralytic, it really struck me in that moment, um, watching my son uh, being lifeless on a bed and reading the account of the paralytic and how God immediately said, uh, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees um, said that he was blaspheming because only God can heal and forgive. I mean, only God can forgive sin. And yet he healed him and to show that he had power to forgive sins. And although God did not heal Oaks, we know that he actually performed a greater of the miracle and that he has forgiven his sin. And as little ones have a special place in God's kingdom, I remember Pastor John, even in the hospital, saying the truth of Jesus' words, let the little children come to me, for to such as these belong the kingdom of heaven. In the seasons following the death of Baby Oaks, in the thick of young Brady's four-year battle with cancer, the Muxlow family and the Harrisick family are in what Samuel Rutherford called the cellar of affliction. Rutherford famously said, When I find myself in the cellar of affliction, I look for the Lord's choicest wines. It's in that cellar where we find deep expressions of God's grace. What do Rich and Karen and Andy and Becky find in that cellar? They find grace upon grace. And it's sermons like this one that ready them to find that grace even in the midst of their darkest trials. To become a Christian means you don't have to look at the bleakness of, of the grave. You can have resurrection hope. To become a Christian means that you can be rejoined with everybody else who's a Christian and spend eternity with them. To become a Christian means you can enter into heaven and dwell with God and, and live in His celestial kingdom and all the marvels of that kind of afterlife. You see, that in itself is a great incentive for salvation. Let's return to that hospital waiting room the day of Patricia's car wreck. John walks in and Matt tells him about his mom's injuries. And after hearing the devastating news, Pastor John puts his hand on the shoulder of his son and gives him that three-word sermon, God 
is sovereign. I was an emotional basket case, and uh, Dad, uh, as as uh, as the pastor who was dealing with life and trials and tribulations and the people in our church, this hit home, and uh, we didn't even have to think about it. It just came right out. And uh, as I've often said to folks over the years, I've heard a lot of messages, arguably more than anybody alive, uh, from John MacArthur, and that was the most profound message I'd ever heard. And to that's still true to this day. Uh, to, to just see somebody in such a horrendous crisis of the dearest person in your life facing eternity, to, to respond like that was just enormous. I mean, my, my respect for my dad, I don't know that it could have been higher, but at that point it was high. Whether MacArthur is in a hospital room or the pulpit, He knows that hurting souls need divine truth. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because only there will they find hope. Not hope that everything will be better tomorrow. The gospel doesn't promise that. I'm talking about the hope that guarantees a better life beyond the grave. This hope is beautifully captured in the Heidelberg Catechism, written by early reformers in 1563. The first question is this. What is your only comfort in life and death? How does the catechism answer that question? Paul Twist, read it for us. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Marion was born in May, May 29th in 1986, after I'd been at Gordon-Conwell Seminary two years. And uh, she seemed perfectly healthy when she was born um, and w- was apparently healthy for five weeks. This is my friend, T. David Gordon. He's the author of Why Johnny Can't Preach, one of the best books on preaching you could read. He also teaches Greek, New Testament, and media ecology at Grove City College. This summer, while lecturing in the Doctor of Ministry program at the seminary, he told his story of heartache and hope. And uh, when she was six weeks old, she had cold-like symptoms as though she was having difficulty breathing. And When it didn't get better, we took her to Beverly Hospital where she'd been born, and we waited for quite a while as they were conducting tests. We later found out the reason for the length of time we waited was that when they tested her blood, Um, then a healthy child has a white count of 10,000 and a leukemic child has a white count of 20,000 ordinarily. And Marion had an account of 174,000 and informed us that with her particular unusual form of leukemia, there were only six previous cases in American medical history, none of whom had survived. So we settled in with her there at Boston Children's and lived the last eight weeks of her life there um, before we 
uh, kissed her goodbye at Center on. Uh, so uh, we, have, we went from being non-parents to parents to non-parents in uh, 14 weeks. So it, it was a, a pretty brief life for her, and uh, but a great blessing to us. We experienced the joy of parenting. Um, and uh, as all parents know, you look at God, the Heavenly Father, differently once you are a parent. Once you're a parent, you understand uh, what that is. Marion was the Gordon's first daughter. Not long after she was born and before she was diagnosed with leukemia, Dr. Gordon stumbled across a series of letters from R.L. Dabney, a 19th century preacher who taught at Union Seminary in Virginia. In the process of reading those letters, um, at one point I learned that Dabney's two firstborn sons had died within about five weeks of each other. And the letters he wrote to his brother expressing both his faith and his grief were so profound that uh, as I was reading those letters, uh, I went inside, I had been out on the, on the deck, and read them aloud to Diane, who was changing Marion's diaper at the time, and Marion was at that point five weeks old and healthy. Um, and so uh, I actually read the letters to Diane, and uh, we were both deeply moved by his loss and by how profoundly he did so much good for the church after such a loss. And we wondered how anyone could suffer such a blow and do what he did. And six days later, in God's providence, we learned that we would lose our firstborn also. Here's the final portion of Dabney's letter. Our parting is not for long. This spoiled and ruined body will be raised and all its ravished beauties more than repaired. Our little boy, we hope and trust, is now a ransom spirit. This is a hope inexpressible and full of glory. As I stand by the little grave and think of the poor ruined clay within, that was a few days ago so beautiful, my heart bleeds. But I ask, where is the soul whose beams gave that clay all its beauty and preciousness? I triumph. Has it not already begun with an infant voice, the praises of my Savior? He is in Christ's heavenly house and under his guardian love. Now I feel as never before the blessedness of the redeeming grace and divine blood which have ransomed my poor babe from all the sin and death he inherited through me. And so uh, that's why after Marion died, uh, the, uh, uh, our next child that was born, we called her Grace Elizabeth because it was only the grace of God that gave us the courage to have more children at that point. But those letters were such a kind providential act of God to prepare us for our loss. Pastor, your people will look to you. They will depend on you in their darkest times. What will you give them? Empathy is essential, but it is not enough. Your people need Christ, because every time you stand before them, you speak to those living in a fallen world. They need the unshakable hope of resurrection. They need Christ proclaimed a risen Savior. And as your flock suffers, they need to know that affliction has shaped you, and they need to see it conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. Speaking of the presence of trials and their shaping work, Bishop J.C. Ryle said this, Let us mark well this lesson. 
If we are true Christians, we must not expect everything smooth in our journey to heaven. We must count it no strange thing if we have to endure sicknesses, losses, bereavements, and disappointments just like other men. Free pardon and full forgiveness, grace by the way and glory at the end, all this our Savior has promised to give, but he has never promised that we shall have no afflictions. He loves us too well to promise that. By affliction, he teaches us many precious lessons. Without it, we should never learn. By affliction, he shows us our emptiness and weakness, draws us to the throne of grace, purifies our affections, weans us from the world, makes us long for heaven. In the resurrection morning, we shall all say, it is good for me that I was afflicted. And we shall thank God for every storm. When you go through the sufferings of life, God has a purpose. His purpose is to manifest the character of your spiritual life to everybody around you and to you as well. His purpose is to humble you because of his multitude of blessings poured out upon you. And his purpose is to draw you into the intimacy of his glorious presence. Thanks for listening to Episode 7 of The Expositor, Season 1 of the MacArthur Center Podcast. Next time, in our final episode of this first season, we're going to talk about faithful endurance. While most pastors' average tenure is three years at a church, John MacArthur has made it 52 years as the pastor of Grace Community Church. How has he done it? And why does he keep going? Find out next time on The Expositor. Season one of the MacArthur Center podcast is produced by Austin Duncan, Corey Williams, and Jeremy Vuolo. Our editor is Cody Signore. Special thanks to so many who helped us with this episode, but a special word of gratitude to those who are willing to share their pain and their hope, and for that we're truly grateful. For more information about the MacArthur Center, go to macarthurcenter.org and to learn more about the Master's Seminary, go to tms.edu. One final word for those of you still listening. It's from Andy Muxlow, the father of baby Oaks. After Oaks went home to be with the Lord, uh, Becky and I both would pray and ask the Lord if it if it would be his will that we would be blessed with another child. And so after a few months, um, God did exactly that and didn't only bless us with one beautiful son, but with two, with identical twins that were born uh, a year after Oaks went home to be with the Lord. I remember Pastor John uh, telling us, you know, in the story of Job that God gave and take a, took away and he said in your um in your life he took away and gave and uh we were we're, we're just so grateful for god's kindness to us in that